Greetings and welcome to the Heart Hall Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Cordova. The Heart Hall Podcast is a show dedicated to highlighting the faculty, staff, and guests of the University of California Davis's Ethnic and Gender Sexuality Studies departments housed in Heart Hall and under the Heart Interdisciplinary Programs umbrella. In this episode, I welcome Zoila S. Mendoza onto the show. Professor Mendoza is the current chair of UCD's Native American Studies Department. She has a BA in Anthropology from the Pontifical Catholic University of Peru as well as a PhD in anthropology from the University of Chicago. Professor Mendoza is also the author of several books, including Shaping Society Through Dance, Creating Our Own Folklore, and her latest Kolyu Riti, Chronicles of Cusco Pilgrimage. Professor Mendoza and I discussed this book, the research behind it, her love of music and dance, growing up in Peru, and a lot more. If you are interested in purchasing a copy of Professor Mendoza's latest book, you may do so at the link in this episode's description. Now here's my chat with Professor Zoila Mendoza. So I'd like to start with asking what I find interesting to learn when I'm talking to people. And this is, uh, where did you grow up and what was your, your childhood like? Yes. So I grew up in Peru and I grew up kind of moving around a lot. Uh, my father uh, was in the military. And because of that, I was born in an area pretty far away from where they are from, um, where then later I grew up. So in the very north part of Peru, almost frontier to Ecuador. So my family was stationed there for 12 years. So I spent my early childhood there, which is a great, we're about this close to the equator. So it's a very hot, mm. hot, uh, tropical um, weather. So I thrive in really hot tropical weather. So I <laughs> cannot was relate. <laughs> <laughs> so I, um, but then my parents are both from a very small town in the central Andes of Peru. And uh, their families were still there, uh, most of their families. So we, as children, I'm the youngest of four. And um, we grew up moving between Lima, the nation's capital on the coast, and the town where my parents were from, back and forth, back and forth, going through 16,000 uh, meters, uh, feet, 16,000 feet, 5,000 meters up and down mountains all the time, going to visit and uh, see family there. But I pretty much got educated in, in Lima, which is especially during the time I was growing up, the, the place where people had to migrate to, to get any kind of decent education. So my parents uh, migrated there for a better future. And so we went to school there. So I went to school through college and through my first professional degree in Lima, in Peru, La Católica University, my alma mater. So, and that's where I met my husband, who was a, an exchange student uh, from uh, the United States. And that's the main reason I'm here. <laughs> I, never, I never grew up contemplating even the idea of going to the United States or coming to the United States or even studying something that people in my family couldn't afford. But I ended up here. So that's pretty much my background. That actually led to my next question is uh, after going to school in Peru, you wound up in Chicago. Why Chicago? But it sounds like this exchange student brought you to Chicago. (laughs) Yeah. So we were actually married already in Peru. We had been married uh, for a couple of years uh, there. My husband is a historian. He teaches at UC Davis, Charles Walker. 
Um, and so his, his research is in Peru. So we were settled there. And during that time, this is the 80s, um, uh, guerrilla warfare, uh, an internal war broke out during those years. That was really terrible. It tore our country apart. There was a big time of diaspora. Uh, lots of Peruvians currently in the United States and Europe uh, left the country during that time for different reasons. So that was a very hard time for us to stay. We couldn't do research. We couldn't really do our profession there. So we decided to come up for graduate school here in the United States. So uh, Chicago was one of the top schools, uh, definitely the number one for anthropology. I'm an anthropologist. Uh, I was my two degrees in undergraduate and sort of a master's level kind of degree, which we call professional degree in Peru, was in anthropology. So uh, Chicago was a really great place for that and also for Latin American history for my husband. So we applied to different schools, Chicago being one of our top choices. And luckily we got in with really good financial aid. And so we went to Chicago. We chose to go there, which was a great choice, I think, uh, looking back for sure. As somebody you said who thrives in hot weather, how is that transition to Chicago, which is famously the windy city and cold and all that? <laughs> well, you got it exactly. My suffering. <laughs> I was freezing the whole time. And I couldn't really enjoy the summers, which are nice in Chicago, the only nice time probably, because we, as soon as classes were over, we were back in Peru for the three months uh, of the break. So... During the year, I froze to death. I wore my snow boots. I wore earmuffs. We, uh, the university is very close to the lake. Mm -hmm. So the wind was terrible. Every day we'll hear, okay, this is the temperature. But with the wind factor, this is the temperature. So it was, it was suffering. But, you know, in graduate school, like uh, a lot of graduate students would relate to, you spend a, a lot of time inside. I basically lived between the library and my teeny apartment. So I try to avoid the outside. But I did suffer very much uh, the cold. And especially, you know, my parents are from the Andes. I had experienced a different kind of cold. But, uh, you know, when you live in the cold, there's a whole environment in, in third world countries where there's no heating so it's different. Here, I think in the United States, you get used to artificial things like the heating, right? So going in and out, in and out, hot and cold, that is really hard because your body can't really adapt. So that was really hard for me uh, to get used to an artificial system. Well, in Peru, you know, I lived in, in high Andes areas because of my parents, but it was cold at night, but it was really nice and sunny and hot during the day. So it's different, you know, it's uh, people adapt to that, but Chicago was just very, very hard weather-wise to, to deal with. So, yeah. Uh, I want to come back to something that just struck me. Um, you mentioned the, the conflicts that were happening in Peru in, in the 80s, and uh, I know you've done uh, some documentaries on that. How was that, how was being around that potentially coming from a military family? Like, what, did you have a different view on the whole thing? Or like, what was, what was your experience like from that lens? Interesting that you ask. So my father was a very unique military member. Uh, my father, in fact, um, he was born in 1911. Uh, he uh, died at 101 uh, some years ago. He, uh, during the time when he grew up, he came from a very poor family, single mother, and 
the only possible way for him to get any schooling whatsoever. My dad only had a third grade formal education in his small town. The only way to go move farther and help uh, his mom and siblings was to go into the military, which at the time was open to people who can go in the troop with no education, therefore get some education and move forward to the officials uh, school. So that's what my father did. My father was never really a typical person who would go into the military to be, you know, in the military uh, for whatever reason other people maybe. It was for him was a, a, a way of getting out of poverty and, and advancing socially. And he was very unique. He was very progressive. Um, uh, and he was always on the side of the progressive countries. So during the time of the war, my father was way decades retired. He retired almost around the time I was five or six. So he had he retired fairly young from the military and dedicated his life to his passion, which was to write the history of his town. He's a kind of like organic intellectual, uh, re- well recognized in his area, where he researched about his uh, the background of um, the people in this area. He's written books. He's a self-taught intellectual, and that's probably where I get it from. You know, becoming an academic, and all because I'm the only academic in my in my family. Um, I'm, I'm first gen, but oh, my, 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 my siblings did go to college, but we we're first gen. My parents didn't get a, a higher education. So he always wanted us to go beyond. So he was really into a, a, a natural intellectual. So that was his passion. So during the time of war, of course, uh, he was completely out of any military side or anything. And of course, we were all confused and terrified the years what was happening because we now we can look back and understand what was going on. In fact, my husband is writing a book about that. But at the time, people like my dad and myself sort of understood where this was coming from, did not justify the killings, did not justify the horrors, but understood that the poverty, the frustration, the racism played really important, um, you know, they were really important factors, they played really important roles in what was going on. So it was, um, like I said, my dad would feel torn because he would understand for those fighting, he would also side with those who were trying to stop the killing. So um, he, uh, in the family, we did have divisions, especially with my siblings, ideologically, but um, it was, it was a difficult time for for me and my husband to stay because um, <clears throat> it was the worst time for being out there doing any research. <clears throat> in fact, I went down <clears throat> in Chicago. I went down with a I received a Fulbright fellowship to go back to Peru and do research in the area where my parents are from. The war was so still going on, and so they told me. You can't. You can't really do research out there. You have to move. So I had to relocate my research to Cusco, which is what's, you know, um, where I spent then decades researching. So um, the, the war was was long, and the aftermath of the of the war, uh, you know, was also. I mean, after the the main leaders were captured, it continued for a long time. We kept wanting to go back. My my daughter, who's now twenty eight, she was born there. We try to go back 
Well, I was there for the part of my pregnancy. She was born there. And during that time, uh, there were still car bombs, uh, blackouts. It seemed like a very impossible, uh, very difficult place to try to work and raise a family. So that was around the time when, you know, we got the job at Davis and then <laughs> we came and, and stayed. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, to completely change gears, um, a, a lot of your research seems to be tied to dance and performance. Where do you think your initial interest in dance started? Mm, well, definitely I'm a natural dancer. I love to dance. I, my mom always tells the story like as soon as I could stand, I was dancing. And um, in Peru, we party a lot. My family had parties all the time. We were a large family family. Uh, uh, I mentioned we were four siblings, but my parents took in, sort of adopted uh, seven of my cousins. So it was a big, big house full of people. So we always had parties. So I would hear music and would start dancing as well as I could stand. Yes, I have these pictures of me, little dancing in parties. So that was uh, part of the uh, you know music and dance relationship. But the main interest in um, Studying that came from the importance of that uh, ritual dance festivals and uh, music have in Peruvian culture still today. So my parents would always take us back to where they came from. They came from, and we would go to these festivals, look at all these masks, uh, masked um, dancers and uh, musicians and bands, and we dance with them. And we, you know, when I was little, I was always afraid or surprised or fascinated by them. So as soon as I, in, it is in high school, as soon as I knew there was a profession that would lead me to study culture and complexity and uh, in, in that cultural aspect that people in Lima, in the capital, you know, the more westernized part of Peru, didn't quite understand or kind of made fun of, I knew I wanted to work on that. So I've been going uh, to festivals since I could remember because I was little. I was fascinated. I was just so, so impacted by those festivals that I saw when I was little in growing up and going back every year. So I then started doing official research in that, uh, in the 80s. Back in the 80s for my first thesis. So I wrote a couple of theses in Peru about them. And then I've continued until today, until my latest project, because there's so much to disentangle. This is so important. I mean, you go to Peru, spend any time in Peru, you'll see the importance of this. It's such a big part of, of their lives. These rituals, these festivals, these dances, you know, where the culture lives. It's not in the official books or in the schools. It is, you know, this life culture that people learn just by participating in those festivals. So, yeah, I think um, it's fun too. In doing some research, I, I skimmed something about you mentioning how important uh, public performance is in Peru, and that seems to have carried over to some of the courses you teach. And recently in uh, our my normal desk job stuff, you requested that I purchase something so you could assist students with performance singing in one of your classes. Um, how how has that reaction been from students that maybe weren't expecting it? Have you had have you ever had students drop just because they find out they have to sing in front of people? Because I'm I'm not a singer. I'm I'm a musician. I can play bass or guitar, be fine. But if I have to sing in front of people, we might I might not be in the room anymore myself. <laughs> you know, I I thought that that might be the case, but it's been the opposite. It's really yeah. interesting, and I tell my students because 
say the truth, it just tends tends to be the tension with the guys. Uh, girls seem to be most like you know inclined to want to do it, and and guys uh, tend to be a little more shy about that. But I tell you, it's been something that has actually wanted to make people, you know, stay. Yeah, I was, you know, very shy people from the beginning. And in fact, I don't make them sing individually. We sing in groups. Okay. So I, uh, one of the reasons why we, uh, I put so much emphasis in singing is that uh, um, it's a course in Quechua, Quechua language and society. And one of the first things I tell my students that Quechua language is not a for 99% or 99.9% of Quechua speakers. It's not a written language. It's not a language that is read or written at all. It's an oral language. And it's a language that has thrived and continues to thrive in all these contexts, um, performative contexts, and music and songs play a really important role in the maintenance and the continuation of this language itself, which is, is currently an endangered language. So a lot of what I learned, or how I learned it, was through songs. Uh, and, and through songs, you don't only learn the vocabulary, right? But a song has a meaning, and it's, it's sung in a context, in a particular context. And so I, I teach my students, you know, where this uh, comes from and what this is trying to express and, and through songs, and so they get really into it. It just right away, I, you know, I, I, I don't make them think or spend too much time doing grammar or thinking about what is the correct way of speaking. Because, in fact, Quechua speakers correct each other is like they're not speak grammatically many times uh, correctly. So it's, um, it's something that you do by enjoying and not thinking and you're learning. So, yeah, we are uh, right now, well, because we're online right now, we haven't been able to try the equipment. Uh, we're doing it online with mics off. So I haven't heard my the voice of my students yet because they have their mics off while they sing. They've been singing, but I could only hear myself. They can hear me playing the charango, the instrument, and then they I can just see their mouths moving for now. Mm-hmm. But in a couple of weeks, we'll, we'll do it in person. So yes, singing songs are central to that particular uh, series, my Quechua language and society series, which I'm teaching this year. Uh, that actually makes another one of my questions sort of make sense, because um, I, I read that you were initially a lecturer and assistant professor in music. Uh, what courses were you teaching then? And, and now I now I see the, the uh, transition from music to Native American studies, but how, how did you get there, I guess, officially? Yeah, so um, one of the areas that I learned about in graduate school at Chicago was ethnomusicology. Uh, while I was already doing field research and starting to write my dissertation, Chicago hired their first ever ethnomusicologist. They had, of course, a long-standing famous music department, but they hadn't had an ethnomusicologist, which is, I want to explain that, it's like the more cultural side of the study of music, right? So they study music in all these different uh, contexts around the world, and they look at issues of just not sound or the performative aspect, but they look at social cultural issues. So I was lucky to work with that first ethnomusicologist who turned out to, to be a big uh, personality in the field, Philip Bowman, and I 
took the seminar. I started working with him, and he was so great, so influential in my work. It's a field that I hadn't even heard about. And um, in having that training, uh, when I came to Davis, uh, my husband first uh, got the tenure track job. And the music department um, didn't have yet an ethnomusicologist or an area of ethnomusicology, but because they had a graduate program, it was pretty much a requirement that they needed to develop. So it was a really good timing for me. You know, I was in Davis. I started lecturing for him, uh, for them. I lectured actually one quarter only, and then they decided to create a position for me. So it was only a part-time position at 60%. Uh, which was great for me because I just had my first baby. <laughs> so I started uh, with them as a 60% appointment. And it was perfect because they only needed that percentage of ethnomusicology. I couldn't teach their theory or composition or any of that stuff of Western music. I could just teach that. Um, so I was hired there and I stayed there for five years. Uh, as it turned out, it wasn't like, best place for me uh, professionally just because there was always the pull for me to go back to the how to say to the measure of western art music so the the feeling that I got and it is one that ethnomusicologists get all over in music departments is that for people in those departments music is what Western, the Western world understands as music, right? The sound, the tuning system, the reading, the writing, the composing. Everywhere else in the world, the making of music, you know, which is often, most of the time, done with the dancing, which is most of the time done with a cultural activity. And a lot of the time it has to do with relating to the cosmos. It's much more than that. In fact, the sound itself, it's like unimportant, out of tune, doesn't matter. So uh, increasingly, there was a lot of conflict in the way, you know, um, I was seeing what my work was going. So we decided pretty much um, with a department that really wasn't the best place for me. And I had alternatives. I had already been working with people in the Native American Studies Department, uh, interacting, I was part of some of their committees. They knew my work. I had contact with the dance department and with anthropology. So there were opportunities there, but at the moment, Native American Studies was starting the graduate program. So the graduate program was 1999 uh, starting. So they were looking for people to strengthen, you know, their uh, different fields. Uh, So yeah, I moved over there, it was perfect. That was before, you know, tenure. And I got tenure in NAS. I've been happy ever since. And I've continued to have contact with the music department. I have been major professors, a major professor of people there. I'm in committees. You know, I continue to be part of their graduate uh, faculty group. But then a much better place to develop what I do turned out to be Native American studies. Of course. Uh, I'd like to come to your your third book, which I believe is your most recent. Yes. Correct. Uh, I'm going to attempt my best, but I might mangle the title and I apologize ahead of time. Quarial Ritual? Is it still uh, the double L sound of Spanish that I learned in high school? (laughs) 
<laughs> Koyu Riti. Uh, that is an I in my typing. I apologize. Uh, Chronicles of <laughs> Cusco Pilgrimage, um, which involved a three-day pilgrimage up a mountain, as well as there's so much culture behind it. And uh, in the description of the pilgrimage I saw on the Guggenheim website, it mentions, quote, incessant music of flute and drums. Uh, I am very fascinated by these, this, quote, incessant flute and drums. Um are are these people who are part of the pilgrimage? Are they providing like a uh, kind of a a, a, a marching band esque uh, pep to the people who are on the pilgrimage? Uh, I please tell me everything about this incessant flute and drum band that is going up a mountain with people. Yes, yes, uh, you picked up in, in the right place about this particular music. So, yes, they are, to be direct to your question is, yes, they are providing this rhythmic push for the people to move along and to continue and to get where they need to get. Now, the specific tune um, and the reason why the essence of this particular pilgrimage is music and dance, not separate, it's music and dance. People go as dancers with their costumes. But when they're walking, they don't have the costume. They, they're walking for days. So this particular one that I work with, I, we walked for three days and two nights, basically nonstop to get to the site, which in the podcast you can't see, but in my Zoom I have the site that is up there. We're getting to that at uh, 16,000 feet uh, snow peak uh, sanctuary. So the origin of the apparition that makes this place sacred tells the story by explaining that there is the, the way in which these two different worlds came together, the world of Christianity represented by a Christ and the world of the Quechua-speaking people represented by a shepherd, a Lama a shepherd, came together only possible, was made only possible. They came together through music. The story tells that, that because they got together and they danced, this particular two. You know, the flocks reproduced, they came together, and this apparition happened. So the essence of being there, you have to be there as a musician and as a dancer. Of course, now people go to watch, mm-hmm. right? It's a very popular, it's been documented, there's documentaries around the world because it's such an extraordinary, beautiful, amazing site. I mean, it's just getting there, the, the geography, plus the hundreds and hundreds of dancers with the cacophony of music going. Uh, it's nonstop. But the, 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 the point of nonstop, incessant, is important because one of the things I write about in that book, one of the chapters has to do with fear and silence. So if you can imagine the very high, the certain mountains in the Andes, that people have to walk through day and night in their everyday lives. Silence is conceptualized as something dangerous because you're away from other people. You're away from the population. So in order to make, to socialize a space, you, you make music. You, you accompany yourself with music. Supposedly music is what pushes away any, any sort of bad spirit or any bad influence or any danger that may appear. Okay. So that's part of that, um, of the importance because when people 
when we sit to rest and to sleep a little bit, you know, we gather together, we make sure we gather together and we know who, you know, is where and we have to protect each other from the dangers around. While walking, people, you know, are in line and they might wander off and it's music what keeps us together, what keeps us uh, safe from thing, dangerous things that can happen. So this particular uh, pilgrimage, because people walk and that they're abandoning this, this tradition of walking. I write uh, quite a bit about that in the book, why people are abandoning the walking and then using more and more motorized uh, vehicles for getting to the bottom of the sanctuary. But um, the walk and the music is just inseparable. So when the musicians stop, it's just a sense of danger, mm-hmm. <laughs> the sense of like, we're not protected and we have to stick together to protect each other and then continue walking nonstop. It's just amazing how I have in the film, um, my documentary, I show, you know, how these musicians are just going up, you know, and having walked for many hours and they're still going and going. It's an incredible endurance that they have in order to keep the music going. So, yeah. And of course, you know, people have analyzed, uh, I mean, people by saying, people are saying anthropology and all that, the, the character of the music is very repetitive with a big uh, bass drum, boom, 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 as being something that is mesmerizing, that is something that gives you this like, you know, rhythm and abstraction so you can focus on the path. So it does have that practical function as well, but it has many other implications culturally that makes it really important. Uh, the you it mentions flute and percussion sounds like. Are there any other instruments that people are playing? Uh, I I imagine uh, there's something that looks similar to a mandolin I've seen in some photos. Uh, what else is there that the musicians are playing? Yes, all instruments imaginable. So the story, um, the original story, and the original groups that started to go to this sanctuary, their music was based on flute and drum. Flute and drum ensemble is the pre-Columbian traditional indigenous type of music that existed in the Andes. The Spaniards brought the uh, string instruments that quickly became part of uh, traditional Andean music, which are harps, all kinds of mandolins, charangos, different, many, many um, different um, small and large string instruments. So all of those go to this and to this sanctuary, all different groups have all these different types of music, but a lot of them, especially those who are identified as more indigenous and remote, keep their flute and drum, and that's what gives it like what people feel as kind of the authentic one. But all kinds of instruments, saxophones, clarinets, you know, brass bands, huge brass bands, organs, you know, those portables, keyboards. Every imaginable uh, instrument is there because this is a regional pilgrimage. People come even from Bolivia, from you know, Lima, from all over the place. So they bring all kinds of musical traditions. So in my documentary, I, I show you know uh, different um, different groups, but not by any means all of them. So all kinds of all kinds of instruments, but the flute and drum ensemble with the tune is what kind of grounds the whole event. And you've mentioned a certain tune. Is this like a song that they're playing the entire the entire journey for all three days? 
It is, and it's it's what um, tourists and foreigners comment on. It's like they can't take that tune out of their head for months because if you're there for two or three days, day and night, nonstop, nobody sleeps. <laughs> it's nonstop. It's very, it's a very up and down. It's, it's funny because the walk is up and down, and so the music is just up and down, very simple uh, melody. And it doesn't stop. It's very repetitive. Now, the interesting thing is that it's one melody in hundreds of versions. Okay. Because people people play it with different tempos, with different um, syncopations. Local people can still tell the differences. To the foreign ear, it kind of sounds the same, right? Okay. Yeah. It, it, it happens to everybody. It's like when we don't understand a type of music, it all sounds the same, you know. To me, like when I, I didn't grow up with rock or anything, still rock sounds all the same to me, right? Because I, I I haven't learned to to distinguish the nuances, right? So that happens with the with this melody called the Chakiri Whitey, which is got all these variations uh, locally, but to the outside ear, it sounds like basically the same repeating and repeating melody. Sure. I, I'm a fan of heavy metal, so I hear that it all sounds the same a lot. I can, I understand what you're saying there. Um, uh, over your career so far, what is something that you have learned or experienced that surprised you? Like you went to an interview or to travel somewhere and you had an idea in mind and left with an entirely new perspective on that person, that place, that experience. Yeah. Well, uh, to go back to this latest uh research experience with this pilgrimage uh, I don't know if that is surprised me but it would give me a new a new understanding I don't know if I would call it surprise but it was that people were very emphatic about the importance of the sensorial experience of the sensory aspect so you know, in anthropology and in many disciplines, uh, there is this analytical perspective that is always looking for ideas, structures, and forces. And rarely we pay attention to the most obvious visceral material elements of human and social experience. Um, only, you know, some trends in the field, not necessarily the more dominant Right, so there is a field called sensory studies, sensory anthropology, kind of like the underdog of the social sciences and humanities. Nobody really takes them seriously, you know, because like, why? Because it's so obvious and so hard to grasp. It's really hard to grasp. How do you analyze? How do you really understand people's sensory experience beyond? You can take a, a whole scientific approach which people have somehow, you know, into um, understanding stimulus and stuff like that. But you don't really get to understand the meanings of it, right? So one thing that uh, the people in this project um, told me to really pay attention to was to this sensory experience. I worked in this project, this project in Quechua language, the Quechua-speaking people. And in the language itself, um, you know, which is 
different. It would have been talking in Spanish or even English. You know, English is impossible, but Spanish is a possibility because some of them are bilingual. But the Quechua language helped me understand the importance of the sensory, of how the very basic, the very, you know, uh, visceral material aspect of these amazingly abstract ideas or beliefs uh, in the culture come down to a lot of what it is to experience the world through the senses, through the sight, through the smell, through the through the hearing, and I write quite a bit about that. The walking, the, I, what is called this the synesthesia, you know, the kinesthesia, not synesthesia, the kinesthesia. It comes from kinetics. So the sense of walking, the sense of motion, is key to understand. People in the Andes didn't have horses. They walked and they have continued to walk until today for miles and miles and miles in their lives. The sense of movement is really central to connecting to the world. Okay, So the sense of motion is just key to understand what they're all about. Okay, So that should have been kind of obvious, right? To me, looking at festivals, music, and dance, but the way I had approached it, it hadn't led me to pin it down. And it was only in this latest project when people in their own native language were emphasizing it. And then I could observe it in the next experience that we had, and then I could really see it and hear it, that I understood it. And so so my you know my my latest book, which is a, just a little little book in English, I'm sorry, in Spanish and Quechua, um, is trying to transmit that importance of that this human uh, experience, these stories, this uh, experience that has to do with that, uh, with doing the pilgrimage, you know, the feelings, the sensations, why it is important to them, instead of focusing on something, you know, abstract like cosmologies or analysis of forms, this and that, um, which I have done to a certain extent, I focus much more on this particular experience that they valued. So again, I don't know if I could say it's a complete surprise, but it was a final push that took me to, I believe, is probably the essence of all these uh, practices. So in a way, if you choose to take a cart or uh, you mentioned motorized vehicle as part of this this pilgrimage, you're not really getting the full experience, it sounds like. Because part of it is the initial walk. Because I, I did read that some people were, you know, parking and taking a, a big chunk out of the, the whole thing to then, you know, I guess cut down on the physical wear and tear. But, yeah. But, but you still have to, and if you could see what you are seeing my my picture. So you can't really get in any motorized vehicle to the sanctuary. Okay. You get to the area, to the town below. You still have have to go up eight kilometers walking up to 16,000 feet. So no matter what, even if you're taking a car and it only took you six hours to get there as opposed to three days, like it did with the people we walked to, then the final, the final experience of going to the sanctuary has to be 
by walking. Now, although they're, they're horses for rain for tourists, so you can see people. <laughs> <laughs> you see some people, you see Japanese people and foreigners. It's kind of dangerous. It's kind of like they're narrow roads. They're not built for horses. I've seen horses falling off, so oh, I, I've, I've never risked it. But um, most of the people, city people, Lima people, they have to walk. So they do get their share. A little bit of share. It's, it's still impossible. It will. It will always be impossible to have a motorized vehicle up to that sanctuary itself because it is very steep, very narrow. But um, but then you can cut your trip uh, from three days to six hours from the city. Let's say. So yeah, but they still get the experience. Okay. Still is there. Uh, so that was that was all of my questions I had for you. Is there anything else you wanted to touch on before we we call this podcast a podcast? Um, not really. Well, one thing you know I have to say <laughs> um, that I have appreciated for from being in a department in Harcourt. Um, in Native American studies in particular, is I, I had experienced for many years before I landed in our department, uh, the, so the limitations of being within a, a discipline, right? Anthropology or history. And I still see that. I still see students, graduate students who come to my classes and they they kind of feel like they're in a straitjacket in the way they look at the world and they their research. And the wonderful thing about landing in, in Native American studies and what I see, I'm part of the cultural studies program and I, you know, I see all the other uh, programs, there's interdisciplinary. So there's, um, there's anthropology, there's historians, there's artists. And it's such a wonderful, it's such a wonderful place to break away from uh, you know, disciplines and to get in touch with reality as it is, right? So it's been it's been great to be part of this department. I think you know the interdisciplinary uh, programs have a very important role, even though sometimes they're not taken seriously by disciplines because they think they should be doing things the way they they say that it should be done. But I think we end up with wonderful you know graduate students just because they do have that that breath, that uh, freedom, you know, to explore the world from different perspectives. So, yeah, that's just, I uh, wanted to share my experience as being part of Heart Hall and in particular of Native American studies. I absolutely see that working where I do, because, I mean, on the surface, I work a, a just sort of an office desk job, but helping out the departments when I, when I can, I see people exploring, uh, just all these other different avenues that I wasn't expecting. Cause I, I, my college experience is sort of the standard one that you were describing. I, I had a little video production stuff in there that shook it up, but for the most part it was, you know, write an essay, this and that. I've never taken a class where you were encouraged to sing in it. I have, uh, I've assisted people in purchasing stuff to get art supplies and it doesn't seem like on the surface it would be an art course, but you know, as part of the thing they're trying to teach, they're doing screen printing and stuff. And it's, I think our building and our department is really, our departments are really special. 
And uh, yeah, so I absolutely mm-hmm. agree with what you were saying. And uh, I, I'd like to thank you for being on the podcast. Um, and this has been great talking to you. And I, I had a lot of fun doing the research for this because I'm very musically minded and seeing some of the the performers playing as they're going up the mountain, as somebody who very rarely plays live, just took the wind out of me because they've got stamina that I just don't have. <laughs> and I, I'm just playing bass. I'm not even playing like a wind instrument. yeah well thank you it's been really fun talking to you